The Herod talked about here in verse 1 was Herod Agrippa. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, whose infamy is well known. You may recall he tried to murder Jesus. In fact, he killed all the male Hebrew children in Bethlehem in order to, under the age of two, in order to get that accomplished. So this Herod Agrippa talked about here in verse 1 of chapter 12 was the grandson of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. Herod the Great had his own son, Aristobulus, who was Herod Agrippa's father. Okay, so the Herod being talked about here, his father was Aristobulus, and he was the son of Herod the Great who tried to kill Jesus. Herod the Great had his own son, Aristobulus, Herod Agrippa's father, executed for treason, had his own son killed. Give you a little background on that. Aristobulus and his brother, Alexander, had spent time in Rome, as this was the custom of the Romans. You understand the Herodians were just a puppet regime. They loved the power, they loved the wealth. And so they were more than happy to do the bidding of the Romans in order to have that. Uh, We see that wherever you have conquered countries. Those who go along to get along, those who do well in the midst of evil. The Herodians were that way. So Aristobulus and his brother Alexander had spent time in Rome as this was a custom of the Romans. Remember, this is Herod the Great's son. Sons. To take their puppet leaders and mold them was the Roman custom for their use in the various geographical areas they ruled. That's what the Romans always did. These two brothers stayed in the household of Caesar Augustus himself to prepare them for leadership there in Israel, in Judea. Upon their return to Jerusalem in 12 B.C., they were well received. But they also attracted the jealousy of their older half-brother, Antipater II, who deftly incited the aging king's anger with rumors of his favored son's disloyalty. So you got this disaffected half-brother who doesn't like it that dad likes these two brothers and has promised them the inheritance, and so he wants to get it. So he begins this craft of deceit and lies and half-truths against his brothers in order to get them taken out. After many failed attempts at reconciliation between the king and his designated heirs, the two sons, Aristobulus and Alexander, the ailing Herod the Great had Aristobulus and Alexander strangled on charges of treason in 7 B.C. and raised Antipater to the rank of his co-regent and heir apparent, showing not only do lies, half-truths, rumors, and the manipulations of men through deceit and bitterness lead to the undermining and destruction of other men's character and reputations, but can even lead to murder itself. God's law condemns both bearing false witness and murder. And when you read the history of royal families, this type of evil is so common. And, you know, in our day, you know, if... if most people were part of royal families, they would still be that wicked. What goes on in families is awful. I've been a part of it as a minister. I've called in so many times, not, not just with this congregation, but people at large, you know, because I'm known in the community so many times. 
One kid wants all the inheritance, and he maneuvers everything to get it, striking all the other kids out. This type of evil isn't gone just because royal families, you know, don't exist anymore. It's, It's the nature of man. It's wicked. There's older people who are afraid to tell their kids what they have because they think their kids might push them along to glory (laughs) a little sooner. That's pretty wicked, right? And there's plenty of wickedness from the older towards the younger. Understand the Herodians were not liked by the Jews. First, they were only half Jewish. The Herodians were only half Jewish. They were also half Arabian. They were Edomites from the line of Esau. And more importantly, it was Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa's father, grandfather, pardon me, who sold the Jews over to the Romans. Herod the Great, yeah, he he treasured being king of Israel. That's why he tried to murder Jesus. He had sold Israel over to the Romans, the good men who had fought with them. He acted treacherously towards to remove so he could get his position, and the Romans rewarded him by handing him the throne of Israel. In fact, the Roman Senate referred to Herod the Great as, quote-unquote, the king of the Jews. Sound familiar term? So the Jews disdained the Herodians. Herod the Great was a wicked man, and he raised wicked sons, including Herod Agrippa, his grandson, whom he raised after executing his father. Executes Herod Agrippa's dad and then raises the kid till he died. Herod Agrippa, again, the Herod spoken of here in Acts 12, was also raised for a time in Rome amidst the imperial court. He was known as a playboy and a waster of money, finding himself in severe debt. He had to flee from Rome to Idumea. Idumea is where the Edomites all hung out. He had to flee there in order to escape his creditors. He returned to Rome in 36 AD, but offended the emperor Tiberius and was imprisoned. When Tiberius died a year later in 37 AD, he was released from prison by the new emperor Caligula. Remember Caligula? Like tyranny personified like evil personified, like that should tell you a lot about Herod Agrippa, that he's buds with Caligula, so that when Caligula takes power, he lets Herod Agrippa free. Right? Tells you a little bit about this man's character, Herod Agrippa. Caligula gave him authority over the northernmost Tetarchies in Palestine. After Caligula died in 41 A.D., Claudius, the new Roman emperor, made him king, as his grandfather, Herod the Great, was king over all Israel. That's what Herod Agrippa became. This was the magistrate the early church was confronted by. This is the magistrate that murdered James and had Peter placed in prison. Herod Agrippa was your typical politician. He only cared about himself, his own power, his own career. That is the vast, vast majority of politicians. Down through the... It's the vast, vast majority of them in our day. That's all they care about. They love the wealth. They love the power that comes, the prestige. 
Their biggest goal is to maintain the status quo, even when the status quo is a pile of garbage. So he only cared about himself, his own power, his own career. So the scripture says there, and because he saw that it, it being his killing of the apostle James, so the scripture says, and because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. He found this a winnable political act in order to aggrandize endearment to himself from the Jews and from the populace. Understand. That's all he cared about. Didn't care about justice, didn't care about what was right or wrong. It was all about him and what better feathered his nest in his political career. Knowing how profoundly The masses hated his family. Herod Agrippa took every opportunity during his reign to win their affections. History records many instances of his attempts to be liked by the people, to be liked by the Jews. In fact, remember the story about Governor Petronius and his inner position regarding the statue of Caligula being placed in the temple there in Jerusalem? It's what I start my book on the Doctrine of Lesser Magistrates out with. Herod Agrippa wrote to Caligula during that time trying to convince him not to put the statue in the temple. He himself wrote to him. Why? He wanted to endear himself to the Jewish people. He knew they hated him, their history and all that. He just wanted to brown nose them as much as he could to get them to like him. While he was over in Rome, he lived like the dog that he was. When he was back in Judea, he would try to act like a Jew. He was a decent man. So knowing how profoundly the masses hated his family, Herod Agrippa took every opportunity during his reign to win their affections. History records many instances of his attempts to be liked by the Jews, to be liked by the people. And Herod Agrippa was willing to murder and imprison men to obtain it to be liked by the Jews. He viewed Peter such a prize for his further endearment by the Jews that he placed four squads of soldiers to keep him. Okay, It wasn't like they were up 24 hours. They would take turns, probably three-hour shifts, maybe four-hour shifts from what we know from history. There would literally be a soldier chained to Peter, chained directly to him. So he was such a prize, Peter was such a prize to Herod Agrippa that he placed four squads of soldiers to keep him, to make sure he could kill him like he did James. But listen to me now, but God had other plans. Verse 5 says, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but... Constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. There's times where the church needs to offer constant prayer for a matter because it's that important. It's that huge. It's that big. Understand? And they did. They prayed. And it says in verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping. 
bound with two chains. So it's the night before he's going to bring him out, do this big deal. You know it's been spread all around. They're going to kill Peter. You know, <laughs> you know all the Jews are all happy about this. They spread the words everywhere. So think of the egg that's going to be on Herod Agrippa's face if Peter gets away. So he's got him with four squads of soldiers. And when Herod was about to bring him out that night, Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers. There were two soldiers chained to him, not just one. And the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up. I would have loved to have seen that. (laughs) It's like, whack! (laughs) Hey, get up, come on, we're getting out of here. (laughs) He struck Peter on the side, raised him up, saying, Arise quickly, and his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals. And so he did. Wouldn't you be thinking, I'm just leaving the sandals. Get me out of here, you know. Get your sandals. We're going. And he said to him, put on your garment and follow me. Amen. I remember one time me and Jim Sederna were in jail together for rescuing the preborn. And we were looking at months and months in jail at that point. And it was the day before Easter. And all of a sudden, the guards came in and grabbed both of us out of the jail. We had been in there for a few weeks. Grabbed us both out of the jail and said, you've been released. And we're like, what? So we're like freaking out. They take us over. They bring out our street clothes and all that stuff. And the whole time, I'm saying to Jim, Jim, this has to be a setup. <laughs> you know? So it's like, something's not right here. It's like, they're going to try to do something to us when we walk out the door, charge us with escape or something, you know? And the guy explains to me, no, they've dropped all the bond. There's no bond. You're free to go. There's nothing to pay. You just leave. (laughs) I didn't believe it for a minute. Jim Sederna says, as he's buttoning his shirt, well, you can stay here if you want. (laughs) I'm still in my orange stuff. (laughs) So I figured, well, if he's going, I'm going. And it all worked out good. And what it was, was an assistant district attorney saw our situation, knew it was Easter the next day. I talked to him later, literally felt convicted in heart that we were in jail for what we had done. And he had power to move to release us, and he did. Pretty amazing, right? So I can only imagine what Peter's like. (laughs) You know, this is an angel. Your chains drop off. He's got to be freaking out. So he went out and followed him, verse 9, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. Yeah, I bet he didn't, but thought he was seeing a vision. I bet he did. When they were past the first and the second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. That would be freaky. And they went out and went down one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. So here you are in the middle of the road, a couple blocks from the prison you've been held in for who knows how long, and the angel just disappears. No instructions, you know. <laughs> Go here, meet this guy there, you know, nothing. 
Peter's like, and when Peter had come to himself, yeah, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from all the expectation of the Jewish people. Yeah, they all wanted him dead. And he realized this is real. I am out here. I'm free. So he's trying to figure out what to do. So when he had considered this, I would have loved to have been there when he was considering this. <laughs> About a thousand thoughts came to where should I go? What should I do? Is this right? That I'm free? <laughs> you know, I'm sure that thought went through his head too. <laughs> so when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark. Remember John Mark? Where many were gathered together praying. This is probably the Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark, who traveled with um, Paul and Barnabas and caused a big fight between them. And she obviously, his mother was a woman of means because of the type of house that's described here. So he went over there. She was probably near where he was being kept. Couldn't think of anywhere else to go, and he went over there. And there were many there gathered together praying. Remember, they're constantly praying for Peter. And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. That's like one of those names that you always wonder. Why doesn't anybody name their kid Rhoda? You know what I mean? I've honestly never met a Rhoda in my life. Um, There's certain names that get picked up, and there's other names in the Bible that don't. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself. Yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, it is his angel. So here they are all praying for Peter to be delivered. He's standing at the gate, and they're mocking the girl who's telling them that he's out there standing at the gate. Sounds like one of our prayer meetings, right? (laughs) We pray, we ask God to do things, but I don't know how much we really expect him to actually do something. (laughs) You know, it's like, this is like remarkable. Peter's been delivered. But they said to her, You are beside yourself, yet she kept insisting that it was so. So they said, It is his angel. Now Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he departed and went to another place. This would be James, the Lord's brother. James, the son of Zebedee, John's brother, had been killed by Herod Agrippa. Verse 1 here. This is a different James. He was kind of the head of the church there in Jerusalem. We're not told where Peter departed to. It simply says, and he departed and went to another place. So James is martyred and Peter is delivered. Who can know the mind of the Lord? This story reminds us that the Lord has different things for us as his people. What he has for you may be totally different from another brother or sister. We are part of a body. We should seek and be glad for whatever he has for us. We should not be bitter, jealous, or questioning. 
regarding that matter. This story here in Acts 12 of James and Peter reminded me of the story of John Huss and Martin Luther. Huss was martyred. Luther was delivered. The Lord had different things for these two men of God, for these two believers. He has different things for each of us. And we should be thankful for whatever he has for us. Not bitter, jealous, or questioning. Amazingly, in the story of Huss and Luther, it was Huss's martyrdom that was used of the Lord for Luther's deliverance. Remember, Luther was taken to Worms, Germany, and tried for heresy. He was actually found guilty of being a notorious heretic, which was a death sentence, and the Catholic hierarchy wanted him killed right there on the spot. They appealed to Emperor Charles V, who was overseeing the proceedings, and they appealed to him on the spot. Don't let him go. Kill him now. But Luther still had two weeks of the emperor's safe passage. So Charles V couldn't rightly seize him there. He had to let him go. But what's interesting is what Emperor Charles V said when the Catholic hierarchy tried to convince him, just take him now, don't let him leave. Emperor Charles V responded by saying, I will not blush like Sigismund. And he was talking about Emperor Sigismund a hundred years before, who when John Huss came to Constance, Germany, under safe passage of the emperor, Emperor Sigismund didn't give them give him safe passage. Rather, he let the Catholic hierarchy arrest him, put him in prison. He languished there for several months. They gave him a kangaroo trial, and then they burnt him at the stake there in Constance. And that was a huge smudge on the career of Emperor Sigismund. Many Catholics despised him for it. You gave your word, and you went back on it. Wicked. And it was such a deep remembrance amongst the people of Germany of what Emperor Sigismund had done to John Huss. So deep, so deeply was he ridiculed and held in disregard because of that one act that he did that a hundred years later, Emperor Charles V, when he's petitioned to do the exact same thing by the Catholic hierarchy, he responds and says, I will not blush like Sigismund. And he let Luther go. And Luther was rescued by the interposition of a lesser magistrate, Frederick the Wise, one of seven electors in Germany, who was directly under Emperor Charles V. His orders were to arrest Luther and turn him over so he could be executed. Instead, he defied the emperor. He interposed for Luther, feigned his kidnapping, put him in the castle of Wartburg, and Luther spent the next year, translating the New Testament into German, giving the German people a unified language for the first time in their entire history. God has different things for each of us. And we should be thankful for what he has for us, for however he wants to use us in the earth. For some, we may meet a martyr's death. For others, we may go on and on and on until we die of an old age. 
One thing we repeatedly see in Scripture is the Lord's protection and vindication of his people. Verses 20 to 23 speak to this here in Acts 12. But first, let us look at verses 18 and 19. It says here in Acts 12, verse 18, Then as soon as it was day, there was no small stir. That's one of my favorite phrases. There was no small stir among the soldiers. I bet there was no small stir about what had become of Peter. Verse 19, but when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. And he went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod did. There would be no small stir amongst the soldiers because they knew that that was a death sentence for a prisoner to escape their keep. There being no rational explanation for Peter's missing, Herod Agrippa, in good tyrant fashion, had all the guards executed. Herod Agrippa was willing to murder and imprison men in order to be thought well of by the Jews. So executing some soldiers, which was common practice in that day for such a situation, was no different to him than flicking a fly off his robe. And that brings us to verses 20 through 23, and this matter of God's protection of his people and his vindication against his people's enemies. First, let me say, the Lord does not always protect his people from harm, from persecution, from even death. He uses those things to teach his people godly character, to reform and purify his bride, the church, and to glorify himself in the earth. Understand that. There's a goodness even in persecution, in suffering, in death. But at times, he does intervene and protect directly even in very dramatic ways. Surely when this happened with Peter, it reminded the early believers of Daniel and the three Hebrew children and how the Lord delivered and protected them. You know that would have readily came to their minds when Peter was delivered this way. But the Lord always, so sometimes he does intervene and protect directly, but he always vindicates his peoples. He always vindicates his people against their enemies. Even in the Old Testament, when the prophets prophesied about the Lord using wicked men to judge his people, they also spoke about how the Lord would afterwards judge the wicked people once he had used them for judging his people. And here we see the vindication of God. In verses 20 through 23, the scripture reads, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Probably had something to do with some port issues because all these towns, Caesarea and um, Tyre, Sidon, were all port areas. So probably had something to do with money, of course. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. So on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. 
And the people kept shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. That is the vindication of God for his people. That is the vindication of God for his people. Tyrants and wicked men should tremble to touch the people of God. The historian of that era, Josephus, wrote of Herod Agrippa's death, talked about here by Luke in the book of Acts. Here is what he penned. It's a little lengthy, but listen. Josephus writes, Now when Agrippa had reigned three years over all Judea, he came to the city Caesarea, which was formerly called Strato's Tower, and there he exhibited spectacles in honor of Caesar, for whose well-being he'd been informed that a certain festival was being celebrated. At this festival, a great number were gathered together of the principal persons of dignity of his province. On the second day of the spectacles, he put on a garment made wholly of silver, of a truly wonderful texture, and came into the theater early in the morning. There, the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays, shone out in a wonderful manner, and was so resplendent as to spread awe over those that looked intently upon him. Presently, his flatterers cried out, one from one place and another from another, though not for his good, that he was a god. And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth only as superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king neither rebuked them nor rejected their impious flattery, But he shortly afterward looked up and saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings, just as it had once been the messenger of good tidings to him, and fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly, striking with the most violent intensity. He therefore looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a god, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just said to me, and I, who was by you called immortal, am immediately to be turned away by death. But I am bound to accept what providence allots as it pleases God, for we have by no means lived ill, but in a splendid and happy manner. His final decree. When he had said this, his pain became violent. <laughs> he was an evil guy, evil guy. When he said this, his pain became violent. This is Josephus writing. Accordingly, he was carried into the palace, and the rumor went abroad everywhere that he would certainly die soon. The multitude sat in sackcloth, men, women, and children, after the law of their country, and besought God for the king's recovery. All places were also full of mourning and lamentation. Sounds like the two weeks after 911, right? And then everybody went back to their filthy little lives. And when he had been quite worn out by the pain in his belly for five days, 
He departed this life being in the 54th year of his age and in the seventh year of his reign. And that's what Josephus wrote about the death of Herod Agrippa. Historians estimate that this death of Agrippa took place anywhere from four months to 11 months after James' martyrdom and Peter's deliverance. Anywhere from four to 11 months. My point is, God vindicates his people from their enemies. It may not always be in time and space in this present world, but then it will be so on the other side. Remember Revelation 6, 9, and 10? When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood? God always vindicates his people regarding the wickedness of their enemies. The scriptures show many instances where the Lord vindicates his people in time and space here on earth also, however. In fact, look what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Turn there and let's read verses 14 through 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. The scripture reads, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. The Thessalonians were suffering persecution, just as the early church did in Jerusalem, as we're reading about back there in Acts chapter 12. Just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us. And they do not please God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles, that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. And then look what it says. But wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. And by 70 A.D., they would be totally annihilated. Look at what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 through 10. He says, we are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith, listen to this, in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. They're still being persecuted there in Thessalonica, but they're growing in the faith in the midst of the persecution. Verse 5, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Remember, God uses persecution to refine his bride in their character, to weed out the tares, because they don't want to be a part of the body of Christ when persecution is going on. God uses it for his purposes. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you 
and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Amen. God always vindicates his people. There's times where he directly intervenes to protect his people, but he always vindicates his people against their enemies, whether by cross or by sword. Take comfort in that while we live in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation here in America. Luke ends chapter 12 with what is written there in verses 24 and 25. And the scripture reads there, after Agrippa was gone, but the word of God grew and multiplied. His word grows and multiplies, whether in the midst of persecution or a lack of persecution. His kingdom grows. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. The ministry that's talked about here in Jerusalem is probably when they took food over regarding the famine that was going on. Understand this, the enemies of God cannot stop the spread of his word. Let's stand up and close in a word of prayer.